this would basically create in their mind a theocracy in America. That's what they want. I mean, they may not say it in those words, but that's exactly what they want. They want a Christian theocracy, an American Christian theocracy. I'm Mitch. And I'm Missy. We're co-workers. He's the boss and we're married. And she's the boss. Together, we host Good Faith Weekly, a podcast on faith and culture. What could possibly go wrong? Tune in and find out. Missy. Welcome to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, Missy and I are going to catch up. And then later on in the pod, we sat down with one of the most interesting guests that we've ever had, Matthew Dowd, who worked previously as a chief strategist for the 2004 Bush-Cheney campaign and is currently a contributing analyst for MSNBC and best-selling author. His new book, Revelations on the River, Healing a Nation and Healing Ourselves, is outstanding. I think you're really going to enjoy this pod, so stay tuned. Hello there, Missy. Hey there. How are you today? I'm well. How are you? I'm doing quite well. Busy packing. (laughs) (laughs) Again. I feel like it's Groundhog Day for us. (laughs) I know, exactly. either packing, unpacking, or on an airplane. Okay, so our schedule has been crazy. It has been. And my schedule is going to be a little bit crazy because I just realized today that I will not spend a Saturday in our home until the Saturday after Thanksgiving, which is crazy. I think at least one of those in there, I will be home though. And I'm not going to say I have a countdown calendar to that weekend by myself, but there might be one. In our house, you know, when we go on vacation, Disney is one of our favorite spots to go. We have a Disney. Don't say that. People are going to hate us. No, I mean, that doesn't bother me. I mean, everybody's got their spot. It's an escape. It is an escape. But uh, I do think I've noticed that you have put those days down now, looking forward to that weekend by yourself. I just, time by yourself is is a holy thing, Mitch. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. See, you can't say anything about that. <laughs> okay. So we had a great interview with oh my Matthew gosh. Dowd. Yes. And we're about to listen to it. Before we get started, I do feel, I know we made a truce um Listeners. No more quizzes. No quizzes. We surprised each other with pop quizzes the last two weeks, and we we made a deal, no pop quizzes. However, I'm breaking that. <laughs> Shocker. Just, okay. Just, so I have this little quiz for you today, and it's only three questions, which is great, except that each question is worth 33% of the grade. So if you miss one, you kind of fail the quiz. But in any case, um, before we get started on our interview, I, there's a couple of terms that I think Uh, We might need to just real quickly go over so that our audience um, knows what these terms mean. So not in a sermon, but in a quick 30-second response, Mitch, tell us what is Calvinism? Calvinism was built upon the reformer John Calvin, who was a French theologian who was kicked out of France uh, and lived in Switzerland. He believed and built a theology around that God was so omniscient, so big, that he knew everything, and that God at one time had elected, or still does, elected certain people to live in eternity with him, and everyone else will be damned. So 
that's only one part of that theology. But in the interview, we do talk about this election type of idea that there are certain people in the world and throughout history who have found favor with God, and it's been predestined that they are the chosen people of God. So certain people are in and certain people are out. Absolutely. And we've talked about the last few weeks as human beings, we love this concept. Oh, yes, absolutely. Okay. We totally adore it. So is would you add a descriptor for hyper-Calvinism? Hyper-Calvinism is an attempt to take what, because I truly believe and and. You know, I am not a trained theologian. I am a, a pastor. I work in media now. You said you're not a trained theologian? No, I'm That's not. That's not true. Well, I don't write huge, you know, mammoth works on theology or teach theology. You are a theologian. I'm a practical theologian. Okay. Okay. Fine. So, at any rate, hyper Calvinism takes what Calvin established and just ramps it up that not only does this election have to do with eternal life, it has to do with the chosen people here on earth that are set aside to rule everybody else. Now, Calvin had some tendencies in that area. I mean, Calvin executed a lot of other Christians because he considered them apostates, but this hyper-Calvinism really just establishes certain people as a hierarchy over everyone else. Okay. So the last term, and I know this is going to be very difficult for you to condense this into a, a definition, because we're going to talk more about it after sure. the interview. What is eschatology? Eschatology is simply this. It is the study of last things. So what's going to happen when time stops? And there's a biblical narrative that hints to what that might happen. Now I know what's going to happen. I read Left Behind. <laughs> <laughs> if you've read Left Behind, no. we're going to have to go to mar- marital counseling. <laughs> I actually have not read that book. But, but uh, that's, what it, that's what it's about. I know we'll talk about it more after the interview with Matthew Dowd. So it's the study of the end times. We're yes. talking like Revelation and the, yeah. pan, the pan theory, which I guess, bonus question, what's the pan theory? It all will pan out in the end. Okay. And so that's it, audience. Now you have been informed of some little terms uh, you may or may not have known before. So enjoy the interview. Matthew is fantastic. And we will catch back up afterwards. Hey, listeners, check us out online at goodfaithmedia.org and follow us on social at gfmedia.org. We'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. I'm new here and could really use the feedback, but only if it's glowing. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, we've got a very special guest with us. Matthew Dowd is one of the most creative analysts, visionaries, and political strategists of his generation. He previously worked as chief strategist for the 2004 Bush-Cheney campaign. He currently is a contributing analyst for MSNBC and best-selling author. His newest book, Revelations on the River, Healing a Nation, Healing Ourselves, takes readers along his own journey with its ups and downs. And in my opinion, it is a must-read for anyone who's concerned about the direction of our country, and looking for hope to cling to. Matthew Dowd, welcome to Good Faith Weekly. 
Just so glad to be here with y'all. Well, we really appreciate uh, you taking the time to talk to us. There's so much going on uh, in our world. As you know, uh, Christian nationalism, white Christian nationalism, has arisen again. It never went away. It just lay dormant for a while, but now it's it's up front and center. So we want to talk about that with you today. You recently stated in an interview, there is no difference between the people pushing religion and the people pushing politics, and that white Christian nationalism completely occupies the Republican Party. And then later on in the interview, you talk about them occupying the Supreme Court. So Matthew, can you expound on what has happened in this rise of white Christian nationalism in politics? Sure. And I'm, I'm glad to be here. I'm glad to have this conversation because I think it's one of, if not the most concerning thing going on in America today, it's on the, on the top three on the list. Um, I, I've watched it happen and being a person of faith, uh, having grown up as a Catholic and an altar boy. And now I go to a interdenominational church, both in Texas and I'm where I am right now up in Vermont. Um, it's both concerning from a constitutional perspective, in my view, from a American constitutional perspective, but I also think it's it's equally as concerning from a faith perspective, because I was always brought up that our constitution was supposed to, we we're supposed to separate, you know, church and government sure. and have that line that's drawn between and that you can have a person of faith that informs you and in what you do and how you think you're supposed to approach. But there is supposed to be a definitive line that protects both people of all faiths, even faiths we don't practice, and people of no faith. So I, I was brought up that way, but I was also brought up with the idea that faith was something you practice in your daily life, something that you did, something that you helped a community, helped a neighborhood. And there was also supposed to be a line, and the way I was brought up, there was supposed to be a line between the practice of faith and an, its occupation in government. Um, and I always recall the render under Caesar uh, that Jesus said in the gospel, render under Caesar what are Caesar's and mine what is mine. To me, that was like a, a, a direction that we should go. That's completely, those both sides of those coin, that same coin, the Constitution of the faith, seems to either been forgotten or ignored by people in the community that now want to uh, basically uh, in, just interlock both our government and their faith completely together uh, in a way uh, that I think is is dangerous, um, not only to people of no faith, but I think it's dangerous to people of faith. I think it's mm. incredibly dangerous to people of faith. And that has become a center point of the Republican Party today. Um, it, it, we used to believe, you know, white evangelicals would support the Republican Party because of their conservative policies. But it's now become the main occupation, in my view, of what most of the rising group in the Republican Party pushes. And they it used to be subtle, as you you all right. I know watch. It used to be a subtle thing. It's not subtle anymore. No. And they basically announced that's what they want to do. Um, and they announced they want to basically take their faith and make it the faith of the United States and make it the practice of the U.S. government, their their version, I'll say, their version of what they believe the Bible teaches or what the Gospels say. And so uh, it, 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 if they had their way, I, I believe we would lose the truthness of our faith and we lo would lose the U.S. Constitution as I think the founders envisioned it. 
And I think that is so astute because, you know, as we have talked about, uh, white Christian nationalism is both a threat to the church and to the country, uh, as you just laid out. And people of faith need to understand that white Christian nationalism is going to do more harm to the witness of the gospel than anybody outside the Christian faith. And it's just, it's, it's just really frustrating to continue to see Christian leaders and Christian voices sound, uh, show their support for white Christian nationalism through their rhetoric or even through their silence, which is really upsetting to me as well. Uh, has this surprised you, Matthew? I mean, it was always to, the, the religious right, the radical right, the white Christian nationalism faction of the Republican Party was always seen as kind of an outlier. And, of course, you know, it got the full endorsement in 1980 from Ronald Reagan when he was running for president. But it has not only emerged as a power broker, but it seems as though it is front and center uh, and on display. And they're ashamed of it. we got the Republican lawmakers who are calling for uh, Christian nationalism in this country. Has this been a surprise for you as you've watched It's been a surprise for me in the acceptance of what I always had thought was mainstream Republicanism. That's what has surprised me. It doesn't surprise me as I've watched it over the last 30, 40 years, the rise of the entrance, especially of white evangelical churches into politics and especially into Republican politics. You know, I worked for George W. Bush in 2000 and 2004, and it was an important element of the Republican Party. But it was an important element that you thought, oh, I have to, it was like a, it was be considered like an interest group. Like, okay, that's, they have an interest in this. I'm going to go speak to them. That's how you sort of thought of it. Now, I think what's going to happen and in Donald Trump, amazingly, and I I just am still amazed at, at his practice of who he is in his life. And then the, this sort of white evangelical movement that has completely supported him more so than any other group. Um, I mean, if you eliminated white Christian nationalists from Donald Trump, he would get no more than a third of the vote, maybe even 25 percent of the vote in the country. Mm-hmm. But they now um, are the center point. And so every candidate that I think runs for office, especially in high profile races like president, like governor, like senator, they basically have to agree with them or they can't get the nomination. And that is incredibly problematic. Absolutely. So we were talking just before we went on air about how, you know, many people that we hear on the left will say that, <laughs> well, this Christian nationalism thing, it's its just a political movement. And they kind of discount the theological um, implications and the theological, I guess, emphasis on it. And that's something that's very concerning to us about just like you said, it, you kind of thought of it as, oh, this is kind of a little fringe group I just need to acknowledge, but how the theology plays into this and how it is not simply a political movement. Are you able to speak a little bit to how um, the theology kind of mixes into the politics and, and why that is especially scary? Sure. It, it, it's <laughs> That's what makes it incredibly scary because, as you know, people in, our, in the history of civilization— have done a lot of bad things on the basis of their religious belief. And it's because their religious belief in, in some ways, and it's the same thing you see in radical Islam, right? Because people are willing to do way more things based on what they think of is, is demanded by their faith than they would be if it was demanded by their politics. 
because politics is still in, in, in its core, the art of compromise, the art of consensus building. What do you do about a group of diverse people? How do you do that? But when you, when you think what you're doing is directed by God, if that's what they think they're doing, then, then, and I talk about this a little bit in, in the book, um, uh, but it, it, it's important here is they have an ends justifies the means approach mm-hmm. to it completely an ends justifies the means to pressure would because they believe it it comes from some divine authority in their mind they are basically willing to do or accept anything to get to the end that they want they're willing to accept corrupt candidates they are willing to uh, to accept candidates who who are completely antithetical to my version of my faith antithetical to that but their only concentration is on the end, is on the end. And when you adopt that based in not a political belief, but a religious belief, it's very, very hard. As you know, it's very, very hard to have a conversation with somebody that believes their religion or God calls them to do X. When you could sit there and say, well, X is wrong mm. or what you're doing is completely the thing. They believe driven by in their view, as I say, divine authority, that that's what they're called to do. And that people are willing to do a lot of awful things when they think they're being called by by God. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that I've, I've read, I've heard you talk about, has been how this theological conviction on the radical right is playing out practically right now. And what I mean by that is that there is a, a conviction of hyper-Calvinism that is running, running rapid within the radical right. And that hyper-Calvinism really stresses that they are the chosen of God and they are the elect of God. And it really doesn't matter what the unelect do or what happens to them because they're only concerned about the elect. And so when we see policies uh, such as uh, abortion care being overturned, they don't care. They just don't care about the rest of the world. They only care about themselves. And then, as you said, about the end, their eschatology drives a lot of their policy, especially their foreign policy, which should terrify us. They really believe in Armageddon. They really believe that they are on the right side. And if they can be on the right side, they're going to do everything they can to usher it in. It's terrifying that this. Well, you know, what's, what's amazing about it. And there's so many aspects of this, which is, I'm so glad you, 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 you all have your voice in this space for many number of reasons, but it's just not that they want to give a better space for people to practice their religion. Mm-hmm. They actually don't want certain people to practice their religion. They, exactly. they, it's these same people that are pushing this sort of Christian nationalism are the exact same people that talk about the threat of Islam and the th- they talk right. about and they talk about the theocracies around the world, you know, whatever it is, Saudi Arabia or wherever else that is a grave threat uh, to certain people. But they see no disconnect between the, the, their push of basically creating this would basically create in their mind a theocracy in america that's that's what they want i mean they may not say it in those words but that's exactly what they want they want a christian theocracy an american christian theocracy here and that basically would restrict every single other person who wasn't aligned with them from practicing their religion 
Absolutely. The irony is lost a little bit on this crowd. <laughs> yeah, they don't get irony. <laughs> no, well, you know, part all. of the problem, and, and uh, maybe we're going to talk about it, but it was raised when y'all asked a question. Part of the problem in this space is that America is still a faith nation, right? It's still a sure. nation that the vast majority of people, the, their faith is important to them in their way, right? In, in, in their way. And they they like a language of faith that speaks to them, whether it calls them to feed the hungry or do something about poverty or or protect the environment, all of which call, my, in my view of my faith, call me in that way to, the, to those things. But I think what, what's happened is the Democratic Party, in my view, has too often abdicated the space of faith, of the conversation of faith. And given it, when, when voters are sitting out there and Republicans, all they do is talk about their version, which is scary. But if there's no alternative being offered on one who are or who people are afraid, and I've been in politics long enough and had this, you know, the Democrats are just like, well, there's people that don't believe and and every leader that has been successful has had a language of faith. Barack Obama had a language sure. of faith. Abraham Lincoln had a language of faith. A Martin Luther King had a language of faith that touched people, and such, especially Americans, where 80, 85% still have some belief in God here. But I think Democrats have, have created a vacuum where a person of faith who may believe in their policies doesn't know doesn't know where always to go. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I'm so glad you mentioned that because that's a good segue into the next uh, conversation that we're going to have, because it does seem as though uh, people on the left and especially those in the Democratic Party have kept people of faith at arm's length over a while. And I believe that has been a failure of moderates and progressives throughout this uh, couple of, last couple of decades. We have always been playing defense, and the left finds itself using the language of the right in defending its position. In fact, you conclude that if you use the language of your adversary, then your adversary has already won. Yep. At Good Faith Media, we are trying to amplify uh, alternative voices to say, we believe this set of beliefs, not in spite of our faith, but because of our faith. So can you talk a little bit about that language that we need to recapture and that conversation taking place in the public square that we have been silent on for so long? And maybe give our listeners some tips to be able to be proactive in our yeah. language. Well, I, I think, I, first of all, you have to, you have to accept, first of all, you have to accept if you're somebody talking to people that most of the people you're talking to have some faith experience. Sure. Most of the people have some faith experience that they rely on in, in times of trouble or they praise in times of glory. Um, uh, so you have to first recognize that. Second is there's a way to talk about this that is not off-putting to agnostics or atheists right. or other people because I think it, the emphasis has to be on the personal part of this, not on like I, it has to be on this is what my faith calls me to do. And this is why I respect people. I, I think it's also a respect of other faiths, like the respect of people that are called in Islam to do, do what's good. People that are Hindus that are called to do what's good. Atheists that are called to do what's good. I've said before, I'd rather have an atheist who believes in the gospel of love that he may not know of exactly. than a, a Christian nationalist that, that enunciates the gospel of hate mm -hmm. um, any day of the week uh, in this. And so 
I think you all of these issues, treating all people with dignity, respecting everybody's viewpoint, um, understanding the diversity as actually makes us better in the course of that. Um, uh, protection of the environment, you can use a language of faith in this. Uh, health insurance, you can use a language of faith, of a calling to help others in the course of this. And so it's not a lecturing. I think too often people think of, because their experience is, this is a lecturing faith of a of a vindictive God, right? Mm-hmm. Of a, This is a many people that it's a vindictive God. And there is an entire language of faith that has to do with love and compassion. Mm-hmm. And if you put the emphasis on the language of faith that has to do with love and compassion and from a personal perspective, from your own personal perspective, not a judgmental perspective, you need to believe this or you're not saved or whatever people interpret that is I think it works. And, and I've done it. I, most every speech, most every talk I get, I talk about my faith and how it informs me. I talk about (laughs) that more and more people on the progressive side and more and more moderates need to speak to it more Mm -hmm. because it leaves out an entire really important part of people's lives. If you don't speak to it. Um, So, you know, Civil social justice is a language of faith that that you can speak on all of those things. And so make it personal. First of all, acknowledge that people have this is important to them. Make it personal and do the language, not from a judgmental standpoint or a should standpoint, but from a standpoint of I'm called to the same place that you want to end up. It I mean, my faith informs me in that way. But however you get there, I'm on your team. Mm-hmm. I love that. Well, I hope you don't mind. I know your book isn't brand new on the market, but Mitch and I recently read your latest book called Revelations on the River, Healing a Nation, Healing Ourselves. And we we just devoured it and loved yeah. it. And, and it was my first um, read for an interview on, on the Kindle. I didn't have the hard copy of the book. And so I was taking screenshots along the way <laughs> as I was reading it. Mitch finally came in. He said, you know, you can highlight on Kindle. And I was like, no, I didn't know that. So now I have, I was going to go back and pull quotes, but like most of the book is highlighted. So, <laughs> so thank you. I, I just loved thank it. Thank you. But, That's very kind. Um, thank you. In the book, you, you talk about your, per, your own personal account of your journey and, and kind of how we can heal as a nation. And in it, uh, one of the things you write is having all the answers based in a dogma not only prevents us from opening up to new answers or epiphanies that may be better uh, that may better fit the world it doesn't even let us ask the right questions or know that there are still questions to be asked um following that statement you 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 say something we talk about a lot in our house which is i've come to understand that the opposite of faith is certainty so taking that into concept, what questions do you think that we need to be asking today? So thank you for bringing that up because that is something over a lifetime. Um, you know, it, you, I think many of us were brought up with the idea of that faith would give us, a, would give us assuredness in our path, right? Would give us the actually right direction. And we're going to find the right answer and it's going to be here. And, you know, through my own experiences and then study of, of great spiritual thinkers, every one of them, I mean, we used to think, or many of us thought the opposite of faith was doubt, but actually it's faith comes in totally in line with doubt. It, 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 some of the most doubting people are the most faith filled people. Mm. It, it gets them through their day. It gets them through their week. It gets them through the, the their journey of their life. 
And certainty blocks you from faith because if you're certain about something, there's no need of faith, right? There is not a, any need of faith if you're certain about something because once you're certain, what, there's no, no reason, reason for you to have faith anymore. You become certain. And, and as you quoted, once you're certain, you're no longer open to change in a world that's constantly changing, right? And I think the, sort of some of the questions, I, and again, I'm just going to make this more personal. It, I ask myself is, what am I missing here, right? Okay, if, if, I, if I, let's say I have this firm belief in something, let's just withhold that for a moment and say, is that, am I missing something here that I haven't approached it? Or is there somebody else I can talk to that has a different perspective here? And that to me then begins you, it, it's a rough journey. I mean, the easiest path I think in life sometimes can be, or we think is the easiest path in life. Some kind can be one, I'll find the answers and that's just the way I'm going to operate. But I think it's incredibly destructive because as I've, my whole point of the book when I wrote it was the idea that God didn't just give us revelation. God didn't just give us revelation one time to one tribe uh, at one point, And then he just like said, okay, that's it. I'm not talking to you anymore. I, I think there's revelation every single day in every single moment that we have, if we're open to it, if you're certain, you're not open to God's revelation. You're not open at all to God's revelation when you're, in, you're not open to the revelation of creation right? Which is, I think, a constant revelation of God in this, that what we see. And the world is moving. The universe is constantly expanding. Uh, it's still expanding. It's moving outward. And we're just this one blue marble in, a, in one of a billion galaxies and one of billions of billions of planets. And if we think we have all the answers, then we're pretty arrogant. Mm. Well said. Well said. Well, Matthew, we're gonna. We got a couple more questions for you. We're gonna talk. Unfortunately, we're gonna talk about darkness here in a second, and then Missy's gonna follow up with uh, a light question. Uh, but first, the dark question. We're facing the midterms here in just a month. Two more years, another presidential election. What do you foresee happening if white Christian nationalism? is allowed to continue to gain power and a foothold and eventually control all three branches of government on a federal level? So this is going to be uh, an answer that's probably a combination of philo philosophy and theology that I'm about to give you. Um, I I see it as, I'm a believer in the, the I'm in, in hopeful and a believer in the long term. Right. I'm a believer in love. I believe over time, love conquers hate. Yep. I believe over time, truth conquers lies. I, 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 I that's a, a belief of mine. And that's actually a hope of mine. And what I forgot this. to mention so, in, in your book, you actually quote Merrick Garland and talk in when his testimony about uh, his confirmation here. And he said, this is a dangerous time in America. So sorry. Yeah. I mean, energy. And so, uh, so I, the long term, I'm hopeful, and optimistic, and I think we can get through, I think we can get through um, the, the things that were faced. But I think in the short term, I'm exceedingly worried and concerned. I think if that, if the Christian nationalism is allowed to take hold and win at the ballot box, I don't think we have a democracy anymore. Mm -hmm. I think American democracy at that point is over. 
Um, and that's that not hyperbole mean, at all, is it? That's no, that's real. I, I think it's over. I think it's over. And everyone from Jefferson to Madison to Washington, I think, would all say the same thing. They would say, OK, that was a great experiment. It lasted longer than we thought it would. It's done mm. uh, it, when that happens. It's why our ancestors left Europe and came here. We would they would basically we would have become what they left. Right. Um, in, in Europe, uh, which is an inability to practice their own faith in their own way and run their lives in the way they want it and care for their neighbors. And so that's that drives me. So I have a long-term hope and a long-term belief, but I also have a short-term huge concern that is why I weigh into it, um, why I try to express that concern, because I think even if you believe in the long-term hope, it, it is exceedingly difficult to watch people hurt in the short term mm. um, and watch something I've believed my entire life. I mean, I'm sure you do my entire life and believed in this American experiment democracy. I never thought for all the things I've been concerned about politics until the last four or five years, I never would have considered. I would have thought people that said American democracy could fail. I was like, you're crazy. There's no yeah. way it's always going to, it's fine. Right. We'll get through this. I no longer believe that. Mm-hmm. Um, which is a wrenching soul wrenching thing to believe that we actually could lose our democracy in this moment. If this was to happen in this, we would go on. Uh, people would suffer. We would have to hold people up and, and, and try to uh, fix the problem and try to address the concern, but we wouldn't have an American democracy anymore. Yeah. And maybe just maybe that certainty that all of us had that this experiment was not going to fail Maybe now this uncertainty gives us an opportunity to strive for that better union or more perfect union uh, that we're, we should be striving you, for. You know, you're, you're saying something that I have said so many times, which is I've, I, I think that the, this allows us to till the soil of America that had not been tilled, mm-hmm. that we all thought it's all fine. It'll be fine. There's some crazies out there. It'll be fine. But I think it, it realizes that um, we have a lot more work to do. The right. fact that we even are having this conversation, it, it means that we weren't aware of all the work we all had to do, right. that we all had to do it to, to perfect this, as you said, in the course of this and to be better. Mm-hmm. And I think so many things happen. Oh, no, it won't happen here. And, and you know, we thought we had put racism behind us and we put, thought we put this sort of Christian nationalism stuff behind us, which has reared its head at times in America, but never really fundamentally taken power. Right. Um, it, it's taken a hold in certain jurisdictions. But I think it's good to be aware that we were wrong. I mean, I was wrong about that it could happen here. It could happen here. And if it could happen here, we have some work to do. We do. In uh the book, I, first of all, I loved the section about light and darkness, and that's one chapter I have almost the entire thing highlighted. It was so beautiful. Um, but I chuckled a little bit, and I haven't asked Mitch about this, but the two of you share a huge affection for lighthouses. Um, <laughs> yes. So I knew when you started writing about that and went very sermonic on it, I, I just knew yeah, you were just that, I mean, that was my chapter, man. <laughs> and so it, he, it took he, me all the way back to uh, York, Maine, and sitting there mm-hmm. looking at lighthouses. So, so he, he won the battle of pulling the quote on this one. <laughs> but you talk about um, lighthouses are, are being important, and there are hundreds of lighthouses throughout each lake that together provide a path forward. 
each one necessary to accomplish the overall task, each one giving way to the next so that we can get to our destination. What lighthouses do you see that are providing a path forward for us today? And we'll be right back. Well, thank you. I mean, yeah, I do love lighthouses. And I grew up, I was born in Michigan. And I, every time I go back, I try to visit one that I haven't seen before. And as I say in the book, the one of the reasons I really like lighthouses is that they're a great combination of both a warning and a welcoming, right? They're a lighthouse. First of all, they're set on some of the most beautiful parts of it that are, that many ways sometimes are inaccessible, but they basically, part of their job is warn people of danger, right? So don't come too close. You might hit the rocks. And the other part is if you're in danger, it's a welcoming in. Okay. Here's a come, there's a Harbor here. You can come in. We'll take care of you. I love the idea of lighthouses and us being those lighthouses and I say, as I, I'm, I'm glad you brought up that part, because I say that you can't just be a singular white lighthouse because the only the singular lighthouse just gets you to one point. A series of lighthouses, if you're on a journey in a ship or whatever, or in life, people that have, is um, it gets you down the path, it gets you all the way along the coast to your generation. Once the one lighthouse disappears, you pick up another lighthouse, and then the next, and the next, and the next. And it, it, the power of that, um, I think, it, it, I think one of the, pe- the problems that we have in politics today, people say to themselves or office holders, a singular, what can I do? What can I do? What can I do? It's all a big, I'm up against this vast thing. What can I do? And I think that neglects to understand their own power in this, especially coupled with other people um, that have a similar belief that want to get people to safety or want to get people to the promised land or whatever that, or however you want to describe that. I've had many, I mean, I I've had teachers that I think as I reflect over my life, I've had teachers I've had, uh, in the, when I was in grade school that did something, uh, that, that something in me lit up and then it moved me to the next thing. I've, I've had the study of as a Catholic, the study of saints, um, in this, uh, I've the reading of people. I mean, I, this is, so there's real people that I've encountered in my life, uh, along the way where I watch them do good and, or watch them say something to, or speak truth to power or do something and take a risk that have inspired me to move to my next step. But also people that I've never met, you know, Thomas Merton, mm-hmm. uh, well, it, it is a lighthouse in my life, uh, because of just his, what he's what he said, and I actually made a trip last year to his his hermitage in Kentucky um, uh, to just to get my feet on the ground. St. Francis was sure. a lighthouse in my life and what he spoke to. And so I think there's many. I mean, I, I think the other day watching somebody uh, uh, help somebody that they had no idea who they knew uh, who needed help uh, without just not passing them by causes me to stop and sort of say, wow, I'm, I'm just walking through life too fast and not noticing enough, right? I'm not, not, not aware of something that's just right here in front of me because I'm so, I think we happen, this happens in our politics. We're so concerned about like this big thing that, that we get tunnel vision and we miss out on the side vision of what's actually going on right next door. Mm-hmm. So all of those things, um, uh, people I've never met and people I've met have been lighthouses to me. 
I love the welcome and the warning, and I feel like that was somehow in our marriage vows. <laughs> <laughs> if it wasn't, it should have been. I always encourage. I tell you, I always encourage people to 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 go to lighthouses. There, whether it's in Maine, whether you know, Texas coast has some beautiful some beautiful lighthouses that many people are unaware of. But it, it is a and just sit. I mean, part of what today I think we need to do more of is contemplation. I mean, I. Oh. I wrote this in my other book, the idea that we have to mix, mix, mix contemplation with action mm-hmm. and we have to find our path in the paradox of the two. It's not just enough to contemplate something and it's not just enough to act, act, act. It's a combination of both contemplation and action. And to me, a perfect place for that is at a lighthouse. Well, Matthew Dowd, thank you so much for your wisdom. His newest book, Revelations on the River, Healing a Nation, Healing Ourselves, should be a must-read for anybody who's concerned about what's going on in the country today, but also is hopeful for the future. So it's a fantastic book. Thank you so much for being with us today. But before you go, Matthew, we've got one last question that we want to ask you, and Missy gets the honor of asking it. Well, Matthew, as you know, our tagline at Good Faith Media is, There's More to Tell. In light of your work and our conversation today, what is your more to tell? Um, So great question. Uh, And I'll say something that maybe people have heard before, but it's something I try to remind myself and it's a practice I try. So anytime I'm communicating, and this is especially true on social media where we don't see the person in front of us, whether we tweet something or post something or whatever, there's an, an acronym called THINK. I don't know if you've heard of this, which is you ask yourself, is it true? Is it helpful? Is it inspiring? Is it necessary? And is it kind? Then tweet it, right? Then say it. Is it true? Is it helpful? Is it inspiring? Is it necessary? And is it kind? Most days I get three or four of them right. (laughs) (laughs) But if you can get three or four of them right uh, and try to strive for five, the world will be a better place. Mm, I love that. That that is a great way to end this interview. Matthew, thank you so much. Enjoy the beautiful state of Vermont uh, and all the foliage uh, as it's turning down. Foliage. 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 Enjoy that foliage. You can say autumn autumn colors. Yeah, yeah, autumn colors. How's that? One last last thing. I want to thank you all for being the lighthouse that you guys are at this moment. I think it's incredibly important and what you're doing, I think can make real change. So thank you for that. Well, we appreciate it. Well, you're welcome back anytime. And uh, thanks again for being a guest. Thanks. Take care, y'all. Well, Missy, what did you think about that interview? Mitch, Matthew Dowd said we were a lighthouse. (laughs) (laughs) I know, right? And and if it had been from anyone else, that might not have meant something, but given the amount of attention and the amount of time he took in the book to speak about this, something that is near and dear to her, his heart, I just, I don't know, that, that meant the world to me. I'm um, over here kind of having another fangirl moment. Um, So, (laughs) you know, I mean, we said this in the interview, uh, but this really is an incredible book. I mean, it only got on my radar when Matthew you know, agreed to be a guest. But as you and I work through it, I mean, it was remarkable. And I think Matthew in, his, uh, in the book talks about his journey. And from, from someone who really bought into the ideology of certainty. 
but began to be challenged by these larger questions. And it just, I mean, it's just such a good book. I mean, it just really is anybody who comes out of that kind of background who, you know, really has a, has a desire to be certain about everything and then realize we can't be really certain about anything. Faith is not about certainty. It's about the questions you ask. It's about the journey. And so I just thought he did a marvelous job in the book, but he's just such a good analyst of what's going on in the world. Yeah, I didn't feel like it was a book specifically uh, geared towards people of faith necessarily. Either. No, he anybody. He talks about that, but um, he talks about love and light and dark, and he talks about trauma, which you know mm-hmm. is, a, is a big, big topic of conversation now and how we deal with trauma. And he contextualizes. Uh, he, I think he goes over ten topics, and I don't have that list in front of me. I'm, I apologize, but he kind of goes through ten topics and, and talks about each of them, but all very relatable and and very intertwined in what's happening today in our world. But um, I love the fact that he started with love though. I do too. I do too. And I think he talks, he refers back to a couple of um, specific times in his life. One was losing a a twin daughter, um, I guess shortly after birth um, because he mentioned she died in the hospital and her twin um, daughter is the other twin lived and but she was in the hospital for nine months he talks about that experience then he also talks about his son serving in the iraq war and Mm. as i was thinking about this and how experiences like that can i feel like either harden us or open us up Mm -hmm. for more love and light and i feel like in his case his tragedies have really opened him up for more love and more light in his life and i'm just thankful that he has shared that gift with us um, in, in this book and in his work um, these days. So, Well, he dared to be vulnerable in those moments. And yeah. when you dare to be vulnerable, that's when the divine does incredible, mysterious work. Absolutely. So that's, that's what I appreciate about Matthew. I mean, you know, many people probably know him as an ABC political analyst, uh, contributing analyst for MSNBC. A lot of his political... Uh, you know, expertise, but the guy knows what he's talking about when it comes to looking through the lens of faith at the world. And it was, he's, just, he's just marvelous. I feel like he does. And it was interesting to me that he said he was brought up Catholic. And a lot of the things he talks about, I felt like we're so entrenched in our upbringing as Baptist or Southern mm-hmm. Baptist, kind of this more Bible belt, um, you know, in top, in terms of we had our faith was supposed to be certain, you know, because if you if you have a strong enough faith, you will have certainty. And if it wasn't strong enough, then you won't. And therefore, you might not really be saved. You might not really be going to heaven. So therefore, let's get you baptized again. Mm-hmm. Put another check mark on the numbers for the year. <laughs> um, so I thought that was really interesting. But I, I thought it might be good for us to talk a little bit more about, um, as I brought up in the opening, about eschatology as it relates to Christian nationalism. And I know this is maybe going to get a little deep. I It's going to get wonky. You and I have talked about this. You know, I do not like sounding like an alarmist. I don't right. like it when you sound like an alarmist. So I don't want to, this is not alarmist. I just want you to explain how the eschatology of white Christian nationalism plays into their political ideology and why it is so dangerous. 
Well, gather around, kids. Peppa is about to uh, tell you a story. (laughs) Uh, You know, you and I are kids of the 80s. I'm a little bit older than you, just a tad. Mm -hmm. But but I can remember eschatology, the study of last things, being paramount, not only in the 80s, but when I was a kid in the 1970s. There was a book by Hal Lindsey that was published called Late Great Planet Earth, and he had it all figured out, Missy, of what was going to happen to bring the end of the world. There was going to be nuclear Armageddon between the United States and the Soviet Union. And with the, at the height of the Cold War, uh, that played very well. And incredible men of God, uh, such as Billy Graham, bought into kind of that uh, dualistic good versus evil kind of motif. And guess what side uh, we were on? We were on the side of good, and God had endorsed us. Of course. But this eschatology is really troubling. And what I mean by this is that a lot of the things that they are pushing has an end consequence. They truly believe that they are the elect of God. And because they are the elect, that there is going to be a final battle that basically separates good from evil. And they see themselves as the good and everybody else that does not agree with them as the evil. Now, this is extremely problematic, and Hal Lindsey's book and his idea were picked up by Tim LaHaye and Jenkins that created, as you said earlier, the Left Behind series. I was big in my youth group. Oh, it was huge. Good thing I was too busy (laughs) doing other things I probably shouldn't have been doing instead of reading, I don't know, books. (laughs) Uh, I'm so glad you didn't read it. But, you know, a lot of their theology pushes their political aspirations. And a lot of my friends talk about white Christian nationalism as solely a political movement meant to gain power. And while I agree with that statement, we can never forget that there is theological underpinnings to what they are trying to achieve. And what they're trying to achieve is in is to usher in the end times. That's their goal. Because they believe with all of their hearts, they are the elect, they are the chosen, and they will rule not only in this life, but in the life to come. Okay, so when you say this, you're not talking about everyone who, you know, dons, I mean, a MAGA hat, for example. I don't feel like everyone in that group really understands that element. Do you think they just think they're? No, no, I think that's totally accurate. Uh, I mean, I I think think there's there's some driving forces, sure, underlying narratives, like you said, that uh, of people of of theologians or, and and I remember that from sitting in church too, or sitting in especially youth group because youth ministers love to play on the dramatic of it all. But we're trying to usher in the end times because we want Jesus to return. Right, we want to be taken up, up and you know, in, into heaven or whatever that's going to play out like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, there are, there are some concerns that those people who support Donald Trump, who wear a MAGA hat, are legitimate. 
I mean, there are. I mean, we would be fools to just totally silence them and not hear what they have to say. I mean, they do have some legitimate concerns. But what they don't understand, that there is a shadow network of radical religious right individuals who believe this, and they're going to do everything they can to push this narrative because they believe that Jesus is going to come back and he is going to bless them and they are going to rise up with him and he is going to destroy everybody who disagrees with their theology. Well, that's pretty much what he did the first time he was here, right? Uh, he just yeah, destroyed of course, everybody yeah. who disagreed. hundred yeah, percent. I, mean, sure. I mean, he, I mean, yeah, he was the Rambo of, uh, <laughs> of uh, Palestine right. back in the first century. <laughs> so I bring that up because I, I don't want, I know sometimes it can get kind of scary to talk about and I don't want to, like I said, be an alarmist, but, but there is a theological background for this line of thinking, um, and for trying to usher in those, those end times. And I can remember hearing this in church all the time of people's desire to be alive when this happened. Yeah. You know, that, that they did not want to die before they saw Jesus return. And I think Billy Graham was a great man. Um, and even in his uh, elderly age, he admitted some mistakes that he had made along the way. But I can remember him saying, I believe that Jesus is going to return you know, before I die. Mm-hmm. Guess what? Didn't happen. Right. You know, and this, this theological conviction that they have is really built upon a completely, completely mythological understanding of the text. Mm-hmm. The word rapture, it is nowhere in the Bible. What? <laughs> it is nowhere in the Bible. Wow. <laughs> Mind blown, right? <laughs> sure. Uh, but, uh, you know, and, and, and what Matthew said in the interview and in the book is so accurate. In fact, he echoes this great theologian, Anglican um, uh, Bishop N.T. Wright, who's one of my favorite scholars who really did a great job with historical Jesus. And N.T. Wright reminds us, Matthew Dowd reminds us, that Jesus said, especially in the prayer that we all know, that God's will needs to happen on earth as it does in heaven. In other words, our goal isn't to live in the sweet by and by. It's to bring heaven down to this earth, it is flesh and blood, it is justice, it is equality, it is love, loving your neighbor as you would love yourself. That is the central teaching of Jesus and the thing that white Christian nationalism will never, ever understand. Right. I remember, and I pulled that quote, it said, uh, Matthew says, Jesus didn't say, if you want to get to heaven, do this. He said, do this and heaven will be here on earth. Yep. You treat others with dignity and respect and, you know, have justice for all and liberty for all and all those things that, that we say we're about as a country, um, but we're not really walking the walk. No, we're not. I mean, we give, I mean, the reality is we give lip surface to Jesus. And as our colleague Johnny Pierce has so astutely uh, argued that Jesus has been left out of the equation when it comes to modern-day Christianity. We're more Pauline 
But I don't even think that we give Pauline a fair shake. Okay, you might need to take a quick beat and explain Pauline. We're, you know, we're people of Paul. She's we, my we've... great aunt. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody really liked her casseroles. <laughs> but she was a sweet lady. Bless her sure. heart. Bless her heart. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, when I say Pauline, that a lot of people read the epistles of Paul and build their theology around Paul. But they do it out of context, because I think we do a disservice to Paul. Uh, I think Paul was, you know, was a person of faith who came out of very tra- traumatic background, who had this incredible guilt for persecuting Christians and killing them. And so a lot of what he wrote came out of that trauma. So I, I you know, believe that you know, his words were inspired, but the reality is Paul ain't Jesus, Missy. What? <laughs> you know, Moses, Abraham ain't Jesus. They are remarkable, wonderful prophets and inspirations that God worked through. But there's something for me personally, and this is just a personal choice, and please hear me say that. There's something about this person of Jesus that transcended everything. Mm-hmm. And it didn't matter to him if you were Jewish didn't matter to him what religion you practiced. He just wanted people to experience the love of God and the love of neighbor. And that means equality. That means justice. That means lifting other people up who have need. And that is something that we just have not learned as a society. I don't know if we'll ever learn it. So, as Johnny says, we need to have not a biblical worldview, but a Jesus worldview. Absolutely. I agree. I thought it was a fantastic book, a great conversation, um, a conversation, obviously, that's ongoing, um, especially as we, le- we, you know, get into another election here in a couple of weeks, and that could be really... Uh, I don't know, impactful sure, in our world. Sure, absolutely. And, you could, um, I mean... We've got the midterms coming up, you know, and I hope that we do not see, I hope there's no violence if certain elections don't turn out the way people want them to turn out. Um, but we still have January 6th in the rearview mirror, and it's concerning. And we saw front and center that white Christian nationalism was driving that day. Right. And we talked about um, at the at the end that you know and i i feel like we we have i mean you and i have growing up but we've taken democracy for granted um we didn't we kind of thought we were unshakable even if you had uh, people in power who you didn't agree with at the end of the day we had checks and balances and things were going to be okay and we have taken it for granted to the point that you know we've all gotten a little complacent and i i, I feel like if anything Hopefully now we know the importance of voting, of being active, of using your voice um, to advocate for those who, around us, to, to advocate for, the, for, for justice for all. And that was so troublesome when we asked him about what will happen if the white Christian nationalism or nationalists uh, prevail. And he said this experiment of democracy is over with. I think that's what's been concerning for me in, in conversations you and I've had both on this podcast and with other people who I feel like are 
of much greater influence. Well, I mean, I, 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 I get the, than we yeah, are. I mean, say, I get the fact, I get the fact I'm a Baptist preacher and you know, us preachers, you know, we might ratchet it up a little bit for right. you know, sermonic purposes, but here you have a pragmatist you know, a pragmatist who has seen the world, who has been close to those in power, who understands how fragile this democracy is and that we are uh, we are at a brink. I think we need to always understand how fragile it is. Yeah. And while we've read it in our history books and it's all, you know, nice to think about, I mean, the reality exists. It is fragile and it is up to all of us to work together and to keep hold of, of a democracy and to to do what's best for the entirety of our people. 100%. Well, this has been a great episode, Missy. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. You've been listening to Good Faith Weekly, hosted by Mitch and Missy Randall. This weekly podcast from Good Faith Media discusses matters of faith and culture. Subscribe wherever you get your podcast and give us a like and a glowing review. We produce the podcast out of Norman, Oklahoma. Our music comes from Pond 5. And we're supported by listeners like you. Learn more about us at goodfaithmedia.org.